Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today we're speaking with Chad Pearson, a professor of history at Collin College. He is the author of Reform or Repression, Organizing America's Anti-Union Movement, recently published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Chad Pearson, welcome to Working History. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Your book, Reformer Repression, delves into the origins of the open shop movement of the early 20th century. And I'd like to start by asking you to discuss first, uh, in, in general terms, what an open shop was. Sure. So officially, open shops are workplaces or were workplaces where managers employed uh, wage earners irrespective of union status. Uh, the opposite are closed shops or an industrial relations system in which uh, all the workers there are in a union. They negotiate over things like wages and benefits. And so proponents of the open shop principle insist that these workplaces were non-discriminatory. That is, the manager had the right to hire whomever uh, he, typically it was a he, uh, wanted. And it all sounds you know, very fair. And they defended this right to, to hire, to fire, believing essentially in a system of that rewarded and punished based on questions of efficiency and loyalty. So from the perspective of management, you wanted the most efficient, loyal uh, workers based on sort of what we have come to call a, a meritocracy. And so at the heart of it is the belief that um, that employers should uh, promote individualism over collectivism. Now, all of this sounds very nice, but in practice, employers would routinely invoke the open shop principle in an effort to undermine unions by firing labor activists, importing strike breakers, and and thus driving down wages. This is especially the case during during strikes. So you have a strike happening, and employers would say, "Well, this is an open shop. We're going to you know fire you folks. We're going to replace you with non-union workers." Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, so 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 employers, of course, in the private sector, they want to maximize profits and enjoy managerial freedom. And this is in in a public relations kind of way, a, a very effective um, strategy. And so, what sounds better, right? Open or closed shop, right? I mean, right. It, it just mm-hmm. sounds so much better, right? And and how strong was the labor movement at this time in the early 20th century that you're looking at? And what kinds of workers um, were most typically union members? Certainly, the the labor movement attracted uh, workers from from many different industries. Many of the folks I write about uh, were in heavy industry. I talk about molders and machinists, as well as light manufacturing, clothing workers. There are printers, uh, folks in building trades, coal miners. They're about, um, by 1904, I think it was, there about 2 million, about 2 million workers belonged uh, to unions. So, but joining a union and getting recognition from your employers sort of two different things. Mm -hmm. And so employers again, most of whom supported this open shop principle, they wanted the freedom to hire and fire. Uh, but sometimes workers were strong enough that um, out of, for pragmatic reasons, employers negotiated with them. Employers are, are generally kind of annoyed by the growth of, of, of unions and the, the demands that they make. They see this as sort of a slippery slope that, you know, it's, it's too expensive, they're losing control, and they're very upset about all these strikes because some workers or many workers stage these work stoppages in an effort to force their employer to recognize these uh, collective bodies of workers. And so in 1903, just as the open shop movement takes off. There are like 3,500 strikes nationally. It was really quite something. 
Yeah. So uh, interestingly, you discuss the open shop movement as more than just a push by business interests to break unions and stall the momentum of the labor movement, as you're talking about with, uh, you know, labor movement trying to exert their power via via direct action, via strikes and in legislatures and a number of other things. So my question is, how did proponents of the open shop movement talk about it and try to, for lack of a better term, sell it um, to the public? As you mentioned earlier, you know, open shop sounds better than closed shop, but how, you know, it seems more nuanced than that. So could you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. This is, uh, language was was very key, and we see many different arguments articulated by management as well as their their allies, arguments that um, uh, that are economic, moral, patriotic, and so on. And so in some ways, I think the, the open shop movement was one big propaganda campaign. That sounds kind of crass, but when you look at how much language, they, the, the different sort of language they used, it's really uh, quite something. So they presented themselves as much more than economic actors seeking to maximize profits in a capitalist society. So they would talk about individual rights, for example, right? Mm-hmm. The right to work in a, a, a workplace irrespective of, of union status. They would invoke founding father and Abraham Lincoln. Um, one of the, the leaders of the movement, a guy named John Kirby, called a, a fellow leader, uh, David Parry, the Abraham Lincoln of the 20th century, oh, right? Here's somebody who uh, saw the emancip- you know, wanted to help emancipate the non-union workers from the coercion of, uh, of closed shop unionism. Some made tough-minded arguments about how organized labor violated the natural laws of the economy, right? We have uh, tough-minded economic uh, arguments uh, suggesting that unions were these sort of dangerous trusts. Others focused on the immorality or what they considered the immorality of labor activities like strikes and boycott campaigns. A few even said that labor unions were more dangerous to the United States than the armies of the entire world combined, hmm. right? That this is mm-hmm. could be a dangerous force. And so it's not just the employers who are making these arguments. We also see folks outside of industrial relations settings uh, make these sorts of statements. Um, many of the employers had access to the, the dominant opinion-shaping forces in society, including newspaper editors, um, there were uh, clergymen, educators, large numbers of folks really trumpeted this open shop philosophy as a way to help the underdog, uh, as, as a way to promote a more efficient economic system. So, yeah, we see multiple arguments. Right. And many of these open shoppers saw themselves not as union busters necessarily, but rather as progressive reformers. So, how did the goals of the open shop movement jive with broader reform movements during the progressive era? And how was it that the open shoppers could couch their rhetoric in this kind of broader era of, of reform? Sure. Uh, this is very much true. And so one of the things that I argue is that the open shop movement and the principle itself was consistent with, not in contrast to, uh, the dominant progressive themes uh, of the time, the the, the reform era. Uh, they very much shaped the reform era and were shaped by it. How do, mm-hmm. What do I mean by this? They um, – uh, first, we have the popularity of anti-monopoly ideas, right? Very popular at the time. 
uh, folks rallying against Standard Oil or the big railroad companies. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. employers and their allies in the open shop movement used that same kind of logic to argue against what they called the labor trust or labor union monopolies. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, we see the origins of this, you know, big labor as a, as a problem, right? That you know, we, we hear about that in recent years, but we can we can trace it to an earlier time, uh, to the turn of the century. Additionally, this is a time when we see many moral reformers who seek to help the underdogs in society, women, children. Well, open shoppers use similar logic when they talked about the rights of non-union workers. They talked about them as victims of the, the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the the most influential organizations to emerge in the open shop movement in the early 20th century was a group called the Citizens Industrial Association of America. And in their masthead on there, every letter they sent out, they had the, the saying, for the protection of the common people, oh, right? For the protection of the common people. Mm-hmm. So we see a shift in the early 20th century from employers uh, and elites generally fighting the so-called dangerous classes to uh, an effort to help the underdog, Right. In some ways, this is style over substance, but it matters. Right. The rhetoric really matters. Also, we see many of these open shop proponents who view themselves not as enemies of of workers, but as allies. And some or many even say they're not Hmm. Mm anti-union. So this becomes very confusing in some ways. And it it raises the question of what it means to be pro-union or or as you so nicely pointed out at last month's Southern Historical Association meeting, what it means to be anti-union, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's this, this debatable uh, question. And who are we talking about when we talk about the leaders and supporters of the open shop movement? Who, who would be members of this citizens group that you, you just mentioned? Sure. The leaders were often employers representing workplaces of different sizes. And so in making this case, I'm arguing against an earlier scholarship that had talked about the smaller manufacturers, you know, concerned about profit margins, joining these groups uh, and fighting unions, whereas the larger um, corporations accepted some degree of labor management cooperation and, and, and accepted uh, unions. And I say, no, 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 in some ways, this is the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. And so the vast majority of employers, I think it's fair to say, supported the movement, or at least the goals of the movement. And these included proprietary capitalists and managers of big corporations. We're talking about self-made men as well as beneficiaries of nepotism. And and to back up this claim, you know, I, I, I looked at a number of different sources, but one of the uh, most helpful was a 1904 uh, New York Times article that said this is the one issue that unites all employers, mm-hmm. all employers. Mm-hmm. That might be an overstatement, but I certainly think it, it highlights how how popular this movement was. The particular organizers tended to be very colorful people. Now, it's one thing to support the open shop principle. It's another thing to participate in the movement, build it, recruit fellow employers. Many of these folks are not well known today, but at the time really were. One of the people I talked about was a guy named David Parry. He was a, a carriage manufacturer from Indianapolis who helped transform the uh, National Association of Manufacturers into the best-known union fighting outfit, 1902, 1903, thereabouts. Prior to that, this was a, an organization interested uh, chiefly in, in issues of trade. And so in 1903, it, it becomes this, this major uh, union fighting organization. And the leadership and the membership um, consisted of mostly kind of waspish folks, that is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But there were plenty of Catholics and Jews in the movement. There were many garment manufacturers who were Jewish and active 
active in it. And some of the other leaders were, were Catholic. I talk about a guy named Ernest F. Dubrawl who was um, uh, from uh, Cincinnati, studied at Notre Dame, and then actually went to Johns Hopkins, studied with Woodrow Wilson uh, a little bit, mm-hmm. and becomes uh, a, major, a major leader. Uh, but it's not only, not only employers. We see other folks who lend their support to it, uh, both in the area of, of, of activism and in the area of, of offering legitimacy to it. Um, the most popular was probably uh, Theodore Theodore Roosevelt, who uh, and it gives what's called the the Square Deal. This was the uh, labor management agreement after the 1902 uh, anthracite coal strike in northeastern Pennsylvania. This is a massive, more than 100,000 person strike, and the United Mine Workers argued for union recognition. They wanted uh, significant pay increases. And they won some pay increases and some reduction in hours, but they did not get union recognition. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, you know, labor historians say, oh, this was, this was a deal for, for, for labor. In some ways, perhaps, but employers were so excited by this square deal that uh, they, they uh, established an, a, a newspaper named The Square Deal after it. And they said that this was – they loved Roosevelt. They talked about uh, The Square Deal because it protected the rights of non-union workers. And so that was, uh, was, was really key. So, so Theodore Roosevelt really helped inspire the open shop movement, which is really coming to fruition at, uh, at that time. There are other important progressives um, who, uh, who are well-known for uh, in, this, in this period. Uh, Louis Brandeis uh, was very much um, – he was somebody who was a lawyer for a number of employers associations, helped them get injunctions, but at the same time said he liked unions. Mm-hmm. I have a, a famous clergyman like Washington Gladden, college presidents like Harvard's uh, Charles Eliot and Booker T. Washington. Uh, and there were lesser-known folks. There was a powerful uh, economist by the name of J. Lawrence Laughlin – he was actually Roosevelt's Harvard professor and then later was at um, University of Chicago, was also one of – you know was very, very much um, in, in support of the open shop. Uh, George Creel. George Creel is somebody we know for being the architect of the propaganda campaign during World War I. Mm-hmm. But George Creel in 1903 uh, was living in Kansas City and edited uh, and owned a newspaper that uh, – uh, the Kansas City Independent, that was the um, the mouthpiece for the Kansas City Employers Association. He was also active in the Citizens Industrial Association and helped uh, disseminate anti-union uh, propaganda. Lots of folks, there's a, one of the uh, early vigilantes in Montana, uh, what became Montana, a guy named Wilbur Sanders, uh, was uh, fought all these lawbreakers in the 1860s. Uh, he becomes one of the first two U.S. senators. Fast forward, 1903, he's the one who gives the uh, proposes the idea of Citizens Industrial Association mm-hmm. of America. Mm-hmm. He's at that conference. So uh, we can trace this movement to um, early vigilantes. There's a liberal um, clergyman, a guy named E.F. Fairchild, who helps, helps uh, build a, an independent league of, of labor, the Independent Labor League of America. And he says, look, we need to support these, these non-union workers. So the, the range of participants was pretty wide mm-hmm. and um, a pretty pretty broad movement. It was not just a, a handful of, of repressive employers. It was uh, very much mainstream. Right. So let's shift gears just a bit from the people who were leaders and supporters of the movement to talk a little bit about the places that you talk about in your book. And you get at the story of the open shop movement by looking at four different places. Cleveland,
Cleveland, Worcester, Mass, Buffalo, and then more broadly, the U.S. South. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose those four places and then address how they together uniquely tell the story of the open shop movement? Sure. So I got interested in employers and anti-unionism in in Worcester, Massachusetts, a a medium, small to medium-sized city in uh, the middle of Massachusetts. Um, I have family from there, and I went to college there. And uh, it's this old industrial town, and I would ask around, "What's you know, what's up with this place? Uh, uh, What kind of labor history?" Oh no, we had never unions here. This is a you know a a place that unions were never strong, and Mm -hmm. so I investigated that more. forcefully and, and discovered that, in fact, it was a major hub of employer activism and anti-unionism. And uh, some very colorful people in, in the city, it, it, uh, many of these folks were engineers. They, they studied at a, a Worcester Polytechnic Institute mm-hmm. and, and then ran uh, the medium-sized uh, machine shops throughout, uh, throughout the city. And they fought labor pretty aggressively. And, it, and in 1902, and out of that, this big strike, which the employers won, they established a, a labor bureau. This was uh, a centralized hiring and firing uh, center that um, it, it, it kept blacklists of union supporters mm-hmm. and it placed non-union men in uh, in open shop workplaces. Mm-hmm. And so this labor bureau established in Worcester becomes famous and it's, uh, it's very, very active and employers from as far away as Australia discover the Worcester Labor Bureau. They're inspired by it. And one of the heads of it was a guy named Donald Tullock, who was a Scottish immigrant and um, was a, was kind of a poet and wrote about, boosted about Worcester, loved uh, loved Worcester, and and. Um, was uh, uh, the secretary of the uh, National Metal Trades Association chapter, which was one of these uh, anti-union groups. And he was also a secretary of the Worcester County Employers Association. Anyway, he um, he brings employers from throughout the country to Worcester in 1914. The National Metal Trades Association has its national convention in Worcester. And he talks about, we are, you know, uh, Worcester is such a remarkable place. He talks about the benevolent industrial programs, that the welfare capitalism in the city. And he says, you know, we we will have a strikeless future. This is, you know, the, the workers don't like unions. Management doesn't like unions. We are, you know, very harmonious here. Well, a year later, there's this massive strike that breaks out, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> he says, we have a strikeless Worcester and 3,000 workers shut down. And so this is not so good in the area of public relations for them. But they're able to you know, recruit enough strike breakers and, uh, and bust, uh, bust the union. So that's how I got into Worcester. I, mm-hmm. I realized that you know, there's something to say here. There's a story to tell. Right. But of course, it's a national movement. And uh, I was curious to see how anti-unionism, how employers' use of the open shop found expression in other contexts. And so, uh, but I didn't want to tell the same story, right? I mean, the yeah. story is, mm-hmm. you know, workers strike, employers bust them, and then they talk about how wonderful and progressive they are. That is the employers. Uh, we can tell that story in many contexts. But I want to talk about something else. So I looked at Cleveland. I said, what's the story here? I, I like to study the individuals. And I found two remarkable people who um, uh, I call class traders, both of whom different points in their life were active in the anti-union movement. But one of them, a guy named John Penton, started out as a union leader. In the uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, and he was uh, this 
Brotherhood of Machinery Manufacturers. And he, uh, this was a rival to the Iron Molders Union, a, a bigger, more powerful union. And they had these jurisdictional battles. And so he, uh, the, the, the two unions uh, vote to merge and apparently Penton was on the wrong side of that debate. Shortly thereafter, he shows up as somebody who um, – he's a publisher. He, he writes a lot about manufacturing and uh, he shifts sides and he becomes an organizer with another employer's association called the National Founders Association. And he helps bust unions. He brings in strike breakers and he does this in Cleveland. And then he edits uh, a series of, of employers association and, and, and trade magazines. Uh, and he becomes one of the leading organizers, one of the, the nation's leading anti-union activists. So his background, he comes out of the trade union movement. Mm-hmm. Right. So I talk about him and then I, I talk about another figure who's important to the open shop movement in Cleveland, a guy named J.P. Dolly. J.P. Dolly was a management side labor lawyer. That is, he uh, helped non-unions and, and employers. He, he defended their interests in court um, in the area of public relations. And uh, he uh, edited a newspaper called Facts, an employer's association uh, magazine called Facts, which mm-hmm. you know, basically said that uh, that unions are bad and they're corrupt and, and employers are uh, a force of, of progress. Anyway, he was uh, very active in the open shop movement. He was also nationally known and uh, was president for a while of the Cleveland Employers Association. Well, what happened to him in 1911? There's this massive garment worker strike led by, by both, both men and women, uh, large numbers of women. And he sympathizes with them. He becomes the lawyer for the the garment workers. <laughs> so I, I wanted to tell this story. I call it a tale of two men of right. um, class traders. And so during the course of telling this story, I also wanted to highlight you know uh, Cleveland as this progressive city uh, led by a guy named Tom Johnson, the mayor, who's supposedly this you know very progressive guy. He is in some ways, but uh, he's on uh, he's very close to these open shoppers. And so I thought this this was kind of a unique story to tell, and and uh, thought it you know hopefully keeps readers interest. Mm-hmm. Then uh, on Buffalo, I was interested in um, the McKinley assassination. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1901, Leon Cholgish, an anarchist, uh, murders uh, William McKinley in uh, at the Pan American Exposition, and um, this was, you know, a public relations disaster. McKinley spoke at the inaugural meeting of the National Association of Manufacturers. He was very close to employers, and so how did I want to ask? How did employers, manufacturers in Buffalo? respond to this? What what did this mean for them? And so one of the things I discovered was the chief juror, the head juror at Cholgish's trial was a guy named Henry Wendt who was very active in the anti-union movement. And he, you know, basically gave the, the go-ahead, let's, uh, you know, death penalty for Cholgish. And then later, uh, he's active with fellow of his colleagues in fighting a, a big strike in 1906. I call this chapter Avenging McKinley mm-hmm. and uh, show about how busting the union in 1906 uh, helped the employers uh, involved in that struggle kind of redeem themselves and show yeah. that they are going to stand up to leftist radicalism and demanding unionism uh, together. And so, so that's the, the three reasons. Then I, I picked the South generally because I wanted to talk about a guy named uh, N.F. Thompson, who I think is, uh, is is incredibly important. Right. So let's actually maybe you know narrow our discussion a little bit more closely on the South. And in some ways, anti-unionism in the South is a story that's been told many times over. And there's 
there's this narrative of Southern employers, generally speaking, who were openly anti-union. Entrepreneurs and states in the region marketed the South as a union-free place to try to attract investments. And with the exceptions of a few unions, uh, miners, building trades, etc., grassroots unions that did form and worker militancy in the region were often largely quashed and very quickly at that. So how does your research contribute to this this broader narrative? And maybe you could talk about N.F. Thompson, you know, who he was, why he's an interesting figure to, to tell this story. Sure. Um, so I want readers to see it that another a number of Southern industrialists and their spokespersons saw themselves as more managerially sophisticated than their Northern colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. So we see these, these spokespersons through magazines like Manufacturer's Record or right. The Tradesman that make this case very explicitly. They see the strikes in the North and they say, ah, we don't have that down here, which is an overstatement. But it's, it is fair to say that there is less labor conflict in the South than there was in the North. And so this is a, a big way that they sell it. So I fixate on N.F. Thompson because he was very much involved in this project of, of portraying the South as a, as a center of, of labor harmony compared to a dystopian you know, North. Mm-hmm. And so Thompson has a fascinating history. He was uh, born in Shelbyville, Tennessee. That's in Middle Tennessee in, to a slaveholder family in, in 1844, fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War under Nathan Bedford Forrest, and then he joined the Ku Klux Klan. In fact, he was a major leader of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, the, the Klan uh, was was active, of course, in in in, in fighting uh, what he called carpetbaggers and uh, what they saw as disobedient former slaves. But he was also active in, in other uh, more reform activities, the temperance movement. He worked as a secretary for many business organizations, including the Burma Commercial Club and the Johnstown Board of Trade. Uh, he actually went to Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. They knew that he was a, a good industrial recruiter. He goes there in 1896 and helps them you know, recruit business and promote their interests. But he really enters the limelight in a big way in 1900 when he speaks before the Industrial Commission. This is a, a, a big hearing uh, led by uh, a number of politicians who questioned people from labor, from capital, uh, from the public about the major issues that, um, that, that defined the second industrial revolution. So the monopolies, the mm-hmm. railroads, um, labor issues. And so Thompson is there, this is 1900, and he makes waves because he basically says labor unions constitute sort of the biggest threat to, uh, to, to Americans, America's government. And he advocated that authorities pass what he calls a justifiable homicide law. This, in essence, would make it legal for employers or non-unionists to essentially kill labor activists who, who sought to prevent non-unionists from working, right? Hmm. This is nice. He gets so much attention, the New York Times, the Nation magazine. And, uh, and so his anti-unionism becomes very well known. And three years after he delivers this electrifying talk, David Parry, the head of the um, National Association of Manufacturers and the head of the Citizens Industrial Association of America, recruit Thompson to be uh, one of the leaders of the, the movement, one of the leaders of the National uh, Citizens Industrial Association of America. So, so very important. So in the South, what Thompson does is he edits the tradesmen which is one of these major newspapers and basically talks about how wonderful the South is. We have a lot of labor peace. He also works with a number of uh, elites, both black and white. He has he organizes these 
these Southern industrial conventions where he brings people like Booker T. Washington and William Council. William Council was a former slave and leader of the Alabama A&M uh, College and talk about, hey, we don't have problems. We don't have the, the industrial unrest like you see in the North. The African-American community here, they're law-abiding. And he has uh, material interest to do this because of his, his land holding. He gets recruited to the, uh, to the movement in, in a big way and is, is someone who's, who's very, very important. What was the relationship between the Northern Open Shop movement and the Southern? You know, when you look at Cleveland and Worcester and Buffalo and then what was happening in the South and what N.F. Thompson was doing, how were they speaking to each other? You know, can we really talk about an open shop movement that was truly national? Was it more regional? Was it more local in character? What was the what was the nature of this? Right. Absolutely. So the one of the things I, I want to do here is to connect the New South to the uh, open shop movement. And it's it's interesting because Southerners have this long history of remaining largely, though not entirely, union-free. But if you look at the membership of employers associations, there were very few Southerners active in it. And if Thompson was certainly active, uh, and there were others, uh, you know, throughout the South, but the membership was very, um, very, very insignificant. And so this is, this is sort of an interesting tension. So NF Thompson goes to, uh, one of these conferences, uh, in New York city, a citizens industrial association conference. And he basically in 1904, and he basically tells colleagues there, Hey, we in the South, we're, we're pioneers here. You need to look to us. He essentially tells all these people who are in this organization, follow us, even though many of us don't have, are not, dues payers to, uh, uh, to the National Employers Association. Mm-hmm. Thompson himself sees the labor problems in the, in the North. He's in Cleveland in 1899 during this uh, streetcar strike and a, a few cars ahead of him blow up. And he writes about this uh, in the South and he said, look at you know, what's, what's going on in the North. We don't have those problems uh, uh, here. So, so there's this tension again. Most places in the South, open shop, but few Southerners uh, hold uh, hold membership in open shop organizations. Mm-hmm. So they were sort of holding themselves up and saying, "Look, you know, look to us. We're we're the leaders in this, even though we we aren't part of." part of your form. That's right. That's right. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So why don't we shift the conversation a bit and and bring it forward? And I'll throw out the question about whether or not we can see this open shop movement of the early 20th century that you you delve very deeply into in your book as an early step toward what we now call right to work and related Mm -hmm. activities, whether it be state legislation or just sort of grassroots support for that idea of, of right to work. Is there a straight line connecting the open shop movement of the progressive era to the right to work era of today? Or is it a, a more fraught and more complicated story than that? Yeah. So I think the um, the language is certainly not new. Uh, employers and their allies had been insisting that protesters respect the non-union workers' so-called right to work since at least the 1860s, perhaps even before. I don't know. But uh, what's interesting is in the post New Deal period, when we have the right to work movement, the modern right to work movement, you have commentators 
drawing connections between the that form of anti-unionism to the earlier progressive era. Uh, Herbert Hill of the NAACP in 1958 said, the simple truth is that the slogan right to work is nothing more than the old phrase open shop, which the powerful industrialists of America used in the early days of the 20th century, right? So mm-hmm. I think- So he's seeing see, a direct line there. He sees yeah, a direct right. line. Uh-huh. There are others who see a direct line. In fact, when um, the same um, week that the Wagner Act passes in 1935, uh, that is the, the act protecting uh, workers' right to unionize. One leader of the um, National Association of the Manufacturers said, uh, "This is you know this is a violation of the Square Deal, right? Mm-hmm. That this is mm-hmm. this is not in the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt's Square Deal." So here they're going back to the Progressive Period and invoking somebody who historians have uh, traditionally considered somewhat uh, pro-labor. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there are periods in history when uh, workers gain more power and, and collective bargaining rights. We see that in World War One. We see it more dramatically during the 1930s. But I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I, I realize that I think the uh, Jefferson Cowie and Nick Salvatore piece about the long exception is probably correct. This is the argument that the the 1930s to the 1970s represented an exception. That is a time mm-hmm. when workers enjoyed uh, more uh, more rights. Unions were stronger. Uh, there's a, a more generous welfare state. And, um, you know, What's going on there is we see uh, in the 1930s the state responding to a very militant labor movement and uh, and and addressing that. So I I think there is a strong line. Uh, we also see folks who were active in the first wave of the open shop movement that is in the early 20th century who live long enough to continue to fight people like a guy named Walter Drew um, who was in a group called the National Erectors Association and he refers to the the fight around that resulted in the passage of Taft-Hartley a, a law that uh, severely uh, curbed the, the Wagner Act and made it harder for workers he said this is this is the same old fight you know we, we continue mm-hmm. to fight so he saw continuity and so I think the open shop principle has uh, has really withstood the test of time. And I wrote this book in part because I wanted to kind of open up a, a conversation about its enduring power and flexibility. Okay. Well, Chad Pearson, you've given us a, a lot to think about. And thank you for your time talking about your book, Reform or Repression. And we'll be looking forward to speaking with you about your next project. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you again to Chad Pearson, professor of history at Collin College and author of the book Reform or Repression, Organizing America's Anti-Union Movement, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Working History.